welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus. That is our brand new subscriber section. It is exclusive content you will find only at Counterpunch. What is Counterpunch Plus? Well, it really is a replacement for the print magazine, which has now been retired. But all of that content that you got in the print magazine, the columns, the the excellent reports, the uh, interesting, unique articles, each and every issue, all of that is still available online. It's called Counterpunch Plus. It is a great way to support Counterpunch, to support independent media, left perspectives of this kind. Counterpunch has been around for 25 years. We're going to be around for a lot longer than that, and we depend on you for support Go to the website, get yourself your subscription, get a Counterpunch Radio t-shirt, do what you got to do to support this work. It's so greatly appreciated. If you like my work, you can also go to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. I have interviews there, uh, uh, videos, essays, podcasts, a lot more as well. Okay. I want to turn to my guest today, a returning guest. Dare I call her a friend of the show at this point? It's been a while since we spoke to Laura Carlson, but Laura is one of the authorities, one of my go-to resources for all things Latin America. Laura is the director of the Americas program in Mexico City. She's an advisor to Just Associates. She is a columnist with Counterpunch. You can find her column each and every time at Counterpunch Plus. It's called Border Zone Notes. She's also a columnist with a number of other publications, as well as a TV host in Mexico. She is a Renaissance woman. Laura Carlson, welcome back to Counterpunch. Well, thank you, Eric. Of course, I'm a friend of the program. It's good to be here. Well, I didn't want to be too presumptuous, but I thought I thought so. Okay, Laura, um, here we are recording. It's just before Christmas here at the very end of 2020. Uh, Joe Biden is, of course, on his way in. Trump is on his way out. So much to discuss. Actually, it's been like four or five episodes running that I'm kind of opening with this question. But uh, for you specifically, I want to talk about the Biden transition, what this moment means, but what it means with respect to U.S.-Mexico relations. So many issues during the Trump uh, era with respect to Mexico and the border. So how do you read this moment right now? In many ways, I think we still don't know how this relationship that's such a critical relationship in U.S. foreign policy and, of course, in the lives of, of thousands and thousands of people, how this moment is going to play out. We saw a very surprising relationship, close relationship, between Mexico's center-left president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, and uh, the far-right white supremacist, President Donald Trump. Um, Right now, what we're seeing is that, of course, AMLO, as he's called, the Mexican president, was one of the last heads of state in the entire world to congratulate Joe, Joe Biden. And his excuse was that uh, he it would be a form of interventionism if they were to congratulate uh, Biden for his electoral victory before it was officially proclaimed. Now, that is, is very different from what the usual protocol is when there's a consensus among the states and the reporting that there's a victor 
uh, we usually see people reporting in. And one of the reasons that he gave had to do with giving credence to Donald Trump's legal challenges. So that threw everybody for a loop, including the incoming Biden administration, where some news reports indicated that insiders uh, of the Biden team were were disgruntled, to say the least, at the attitude of the Mexican president. I don't think this will necessarily cause any long-term harm to the relationship as they go forward. But it has been notable that in a situation where you would assume that Mexico would now be relieved from having to walk on eggs in terms of uh, not incurring the wrath of an erratic anti-Mexico, anti-migrant president, Donald Trump, and uh, be able to build a more constructive relationship, you would assume that we'd be looking at a time when that could begin to happen. And yet so far, we're, we're not seeing that blossoming in any way. Uh, it, it is true that there's uh, still a risk to Mexico of what Donald Trump could do to Mexico or to, or to migrants in the last month or so in office. However, it doesn't fully explain the chilliness on the part of the uh, AMLO administration toward the new Biden administration. There's still a lot of hope that there will be some progress and there will be some deep changes, particularly in the area of immigration. One of the things that a number of the things that Biden has promised include uh, getting rid of the migrant protection protocols, which is known as the Remain in Mexico program that sends Central Americans who are seeking asylum in the United States back to Mexico to await their hearings, which then, with the pretext of the coronavirus, were completely suspended. So many of them have been there for months and could be there for many more months. Uh, some of the other promises include you know, restoring the asylum, asylum system in general, and beginning to look at a strategy of immigration that focuses more on root causes than the punitive uh, security focus, of course, that that was was characteristic of the Trump administration, and to be fair, has been characteristic of U.S. policy for many years, including Democratic administrations before this, but then was was intensified significantly under the Trump administration. This would be a good thing for Mexico because uh, following the lead and under the threat of tariffs of the Trump administration, Mexico began to criminalize immigration as well, to militarize the response to it, to crack down and uh, move into a more detention model of immigration that's resulted in uh, the violation of the rights of Central American immigrants and, and Mexicans as well because of the the freedom of transit and other th and other freedoms that have been curtailed as a result, and then the presence of the National Guard in so many parts of the country. So all this could be alleviated if there's a significant change in immigration, but so far uh, there's some kind of ominous signs as to how that's going to happen and how fast that's going to happen on both sides of the border. 
I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a few minutes, but let's just finish up this point about AMLO and his chilly uh, attitude towards Biden. And I just wonder in hearing you talking about that, I mean, AMLO has been a political player for a while. He was a major uh, candidate challenging for power during the Obama years. I wonder, is there anything personal going back to that time when Obama was in power, Biden was vice president, Biden was very much engaged in some of these Latin America issues in particular with some of those longstanding ties that he had, Democratic Party ties to some of these figures in Latin America. I just, I wonder, is there anything uh, personal behind this uh, going back to that time? When you look at the comments by AMLO supporters on, for example, pieces that I've done criticizing uh, his his close relationship and, and praise, constant praise really of Donald Trump, uh, you do find people who will say, well, Obama was the deporter-in-chief. Uh, the Obama administration was was never really a friend of Mexico's. Um, and a number of criticisms, many of which are true. At the very top, what seems to be governing the, the response to the United States is pragmatism. And again, the fear of what any kind of economic um, retaliation could do to a country that's as economically dependent as Mexico is. So uh, we, I think that we'll find that they begin to rebuild the, admin, the relationship under the Biden administration. I don't think that there's necessarily a personal animosity there that's governing, governing this kind of a response. And so I think that there's a possibility that, uh, that there could be more dialogue opening up. But again, the thing that's really most important is not how much dialogue there is between the two countries or how well the two leaders get along. What's most important is to what degree they actually get together on a more people-centered binational policy. And again, there, um, <clears throat> through that, throughout the history, since the drug war anyway, that began in two, at the end of 2006 in Mexico with Felipe Calderón and then, and then the United States and the Obama administration, uh, first the Bush administration, then the Obama administration got involved in 2007 with appropriations. Since that period of time, what you hear is that, oh, yeah, there's a great relationship between the United States and Mexico because there's so much cooperation. But it turns out that there was this intense degree of cooperation on an absolutely disastrous war on drugs model. So to measure, you know, a binational relationship by how much cooperation there is, and especially between the armed forces, between the police, corrupt police forces, uh, with presence of DEA and ATF and FBI and CIA agents all over the country, you know, that's hardly a positive measure for a strong and healthy binational relationship that both respects national sovereignty and that puts people's issues at the forefront. Right. And all of that, of course, done under the auspices of Merida Initiative and other type of uh, counter-narcotics programs, much the same way that was done in Colombia under Plan Colombia, wasn't it? Yes. In fact, it was originally going to be called Plan Mexico. And then because there, uh, you know, there was such a 
uh, deep criticism of Plan Colombia, although Joe Biden continues to point to it as one of his you know, foreign policy achievements. Uh, they decided to name it the Merida Initiative instead of Plan Mexico. But it's very similar. It has to do with militarizing, you know, this supply side model of of controlling prohibited drugs in the United States, which says we can't control them here in the country. Um, we're going to continue to demonize and prohibit them. So what we're going to do is use it as an excuse to go into other countries and um, and fumigate and and uh, try to break up cartels supposedly, but basically more like administer the illicit flow, which has uh, significant advantages to all kinds of illegal activities, including illegal activities that economic and polite and political elite are closely involved in. And just to prove your point even further, uh, if you in case people missed it in the news recently, a uh, former high-ranking uh, defense, former defense minister, high-ranking general, was arrested in the United States as essentially a kingpin of one of the cartels, working hand in hand with the cartels, even during his time uh, at the very top uh, echelon of the military uh, bureaucracy in Mexico. Yes, it's just a bizarre case. You can't make this stuff up. So here he is, the former Secretary of Defense during the drug war uh, for the Enrique Peña Nieto administration, as you mentioned. And the DEA apparently had been carrying out this investigation for quite some time, which first of all raises the question, if they suspected this guy, why were they working so closely with him? you know, during during the time that he was in office and that he was running things. And then um, they arrest him there, and, and Mexico gets upset, and Donald Trump steps in personally, sending William Barr to the New York District Court to say that they are dropping uh, charges of a case that's been built up for years, and apparently they had tape recordings of his conversations with the cartel. You know, they had a very solid case by all, all accounts that came out in the press anyway. That they're dropping all charges in respect for Mexico and sending him back to Mexico. And to this day, since General Cienfuegos got back to Mexico, supposedly in the United States with the idea that he would be prosecuted here, there hasn't been any charges that have been filed against him. And it looks like he's going to go with complete impunity, which has to do with Lopez Obrador conserving his relationship with the armed forces uh, here in, in Mexico. So it's, it's, it just goes to show that this, this whole farce of a war on drugs in, has nothing to do with enforcement of the law, it has nothing to do with stopping the flow of illegal substances to the United States. And it has everything to do with forms of intervention and forms of social control and forms of administering what's, you know, like a $40 billion a year business underground between the two countries. 
There's so much more to say about that, but I want to return to the question of Biden and Biden's immigration policies and what we should expect. Because, of course, during the campaign, uh, well, really during the last four years, immigration has been such a key issue with everything from family separations to the concentration camps and so forth. So uh, obviously, it was a major issue during the campaign. Biden, of course, made all of his day one promises on day one, I'm going to do this. And on day one, I'm going to do that. And of course he wins he wins the election he's not even inaugurated yet he's already walking back all of these day one promises can you walk us through some of the details what did biden promise to do during the campaign what is he what did he and susan rice and some of his other surrogates come out and say recently about guardrails and this and that help us to understand and to parse through some of the specifics well, the the, pro, the policies that he was going to undo are the ones that he can undo, which have to do with many of the executive orders and obsolete sort of laws that Donald Trump, with the uh, advice of Stephen Miller, applied in order to uh, stop as much immigration and asylum seekers and refugees within the country as possible. So there's the rolling back, the Remain in Mexico program, where 68,000 people have been sent back to wait on the border, Central Americans, for their asylum he hearings uh, to begin the asylum process again, which has been virtually frozen to legalize 11 million people within the United States, there's a very, there's a very uh, ambitious agenda there. Now, in some senses, you can understand that some of these things will take time. There's a tremendous backlog on the court systems. You know, the immigration system has been a mess for so long, uh, and then and then it was basically abandoned uh, under the Trump administration uh, with this new layer of completely criminalizing and repressive laws that uh, just lifting some of those repressive laws won't be enough. They actually have to get, you know, asylum courts functioning and that kind of thing. But nonetheless, it's still, it's still worrisome to hear them, you know, as you say, kind of walking back on those promises uh, in the sense of, of beginning to warn already that things are going to take longer than they thought, you know. So it's if, if they're just talking about logistics and there is a political will to make these changes, then the agenda could still go forward. And it's true that Joe Biden understands the mistake that was made under the first Obama administration. When Obama came into office, Immigration reform was a priority, but decided to try for, you know, a bipartisan solution and wasted a bunch of time with the Republicans until it became impossible after the midterm elections. Uh, Biden probably won't even have a Congress in his favor to do that. And so he has to make bold and quick moves at the beginning or he could lose that opportunity in a long-term way. The right's going to be regrouping. They're going to be regrouping in particular on this issue, uh, as they have always used, as Trump used, and even in the past, you know, used the immigration as a wedge issue and as a symbol of the, uh, or a pillar, really, of the white supremacist agenda. So 
it's it, it, it's it's a little bit too early to know what they mean by this hedging on it now. Um, but there will be, and this is the positive aspect, there will be a lot of pressure. We've been working with other groups to to present an agenda of what needs to happen right away on immigration, dissolving ICE, um, New Way Forward Act. There's been legislation presented that's just waiting there that can be used, um, you know, prohibiting in very clear terms any form of family separation, guaranteeing refugee and asylum rights. There's a there's a very detailed agenda that many groups have been working on. And with this election, we saw a mobilization of the Latinx population that we haven't seen in the same way, not even in the Obama campaigns. And that mobilization came out of social movements. It wasn't just electoral, and it's it will go back into social movements. So those movements will be there pushing on this agenda. And if they do decide that they're, they want to try to walk back on it, hopefully there'll be a lot of grassroots pressure to keep that from happening. Of course, we would hope that. Uh, unfortunately, from, from my perspective, Biden is the worst person for this moment because of his accommodationist uh, tendencies, because of his uh, desire to constantly promote reactionary right-wing sort of compromises. E- even for a Democrat, he's sort of a right-wing Democrat. And on an issue like immigration, one, I, I would think, has to be skeptical of the idea that uh, Biden is somehow going to take on the Republicans. Yeah, I think that's true. I, there has been some, in in some ways, I would be maybe a little bit more optimistic. I think that we are seeing some signs that he took into account the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and that he's aware of the importance of the Latino vote, even just in pragmatic political terms. Um and that there are changes in the way the U.S. population is thinking about immigration, changes in the sense that it's deeply polarized, but there continues to be a majority that would like to see uh, some some deeper solutions to this. And plus, it's just it's just gotten to the point where you know, having this situation, it. it it became scary under the Trump administration because it was so easy to use it as a mobilizing factor for the far right and as a way of terrorizing whole communities throughout the country. So again, um, I'm not going to bet on it, but I think there is a possibility of making some progress and that it's going to depend quite a bit on, on how much the population is able to pressure on put pressure on that. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to continue the conversation talking a little bit about uh, Trump and the, the way that the Trump administration has kind of used COVID as a convenient uh, tool to ad- advance its immigration agenda. I also want to talk about some other uh, issues related to the situation in Mexico, including the fact that Mexico is now officially the most dangerous country in the world for journalists. Obviously worth discussing that. Uh, that and a whole lot more with Laura Carlson on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Saturday, half September, 
chatting with Laura Carlson. Again, Laura is the director of the Americas program in Mexico City. She is a columnist with Counterpunch. You can find her stuff always at Counterpunch plus the column Border Zone Notes. Excellent, excellent stuff always from Laura. So, uh, Laura, before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of these uh, some of these issues related to U.S.-Mexico bilateral relations. And before we talk about what's going on uh, inside of the country, I want to just ask you, I guess maybe finish up on the U.S. piece. Um, talk to me a little bit about, I guess, what might be called Trump's signature achievement with respect to Mexico, the uh, the USMCA, the trade agreement that uh, replaces NAFTA. Uh, this was touted by Trump, of course, as a major victory, touted by many as, uh, as an improvement in NAFTA, an improvement over the situation as it was. What's your analysis uh, from the perspective in Mexico and uh, how has it been received there? How has it played for AMLO politics? Well, it's it's complicated. When Trump announced that he was reopening the free trade agreement, the immediate concern was that we could actually end up with something worse than the trade free trade agreement before. And of course, I and many people back in the early 90s were very active in avoiding any free trade agreement at all, which would be the ideal because it's they're corporate driven. They have resulted in an offensive against small farmers, against small businesses, um, against women in many ways and against the the environment here in Mexico, as is true of other countries, they limit the ability of countries to, to develop national economic programs that aren't tied to a mythical free market in which large corporate corporations call all the shots. You know, so there's the, the, criticisms of the free trade agreement continue to be very deep. And there's really nothing that changes those structural criticisms in in this new agreement. What they have are the new uh, environmental and labor agreements that are built into it, which they figure will be one of the important things on the Biden AMLO agenda in terms of how well Mexico does to hold to to uphold the new labor agreements in particular, which were very important to U.S. labor, in order to not perpetuate a system that allowed corporations to to exploit the uh, defenselessness in many ways of Mexican workers. The AMLO administration has indicated that it wants to. They just raise the minimum wage again. It's still woefully low, but uh, it was raised again, and it's indicated that it wants to allow unions, but all of that's moving very slowly, getting rid of protection contracts and everything else. 
So in Mexico, there was uh, there, there it was kind of just the I, the the general sense, and certainly the sense from the government was, well, it's over with. And then the Lopez Obrador government, which has declared itself on multiple occasions to be anti-neoliberal and has even proclaimed the end of neoliberalism in Mexico, you know, actually went to Washington during the campaign before the formal campaign season, but during the campaign of Donald Trump to celebrate this signing of the free trade agreement. Again, a symbol of the dependence of Mexico to on the United States. As we go forward, I think that the economic crises uh, in both countries, but particularly here in Mexico, which is beginning to be felt and will become deeper this next year, um, will run, will clash at many points with the terms of the free trade agreement. This is a crisis point when governments, and particularly poor governments, governments of poor country, impoverished countries, we still have half the population living below the poverty line. You know, it's a time when those governments need to have all policy tools in their toolkit. And that means favoring national production. It means, you know, a number of measures that... uh, that could formally clash with what the free trade agreement says. So so we're going to be looking closely at that situation and how it will be resolved uh, in within the confines of the international capitalist system that the free trade agreement symbolizes or actually, you know, cements. I want to uh, talk a little bit about a piece that you wrote, uh, well, a number of months ago now about Trump, COVID, and white supremacy. But before we do that, I want to just ask you, since you are really, um, you know, well, not only in Mexico, but also understand Mexican society and Mexican politics in ways that, uh, well, better than anyone that I know, um, Tell me about COVID. Tell me about the reality of COVID in Mexico. What is it actually like? What does it look like? What does it feel like on the streets of Mexico City? Um, I asked. I recently went back to New York, uh, to New York City for the first time since COVID started. I live about an hour north of the city, and I was struck by how different it feels, how different it felt, how much desperation you could see in the faces of people living on the streets and so forth. So what's it like in Mexico City? What's it like uh, throughout the country? Uh, what's the health situation there like uh what tell us at the beginning it seemed like the government had it under control it was being run by um by scientists epidemiologists and then uh the the trade-off between the economic policies you know the the need to keep the economy open and the um you know the health policies began to really get in the way, um, much as we saw in the United States, uh, where it also had a political cast of, you know, real men don't believe in COVID. But here in, the United, here in Mexico, although that wasn't a part of it, the, the effort to minimize the economic crisis as a result of, of lockdown really, in the end, allowed the virus to to get out of control. 
you've probably seen the statistics. I don't know what the latest death rate is, but Mexico for many, many weeks was the country that had the highest number of new deaths. And and it is now uh, what they call the red stoplight. They use a stoplight system. And Mexico City went from yellow to red, which means that businesses are closed for the most part. Uh, depending on where you are, there are people in the street. What we've seen in all of Latin America is the correlation between control and and um, or between a basically higher death rates and lower death rates has to do with uh, with two factors that go beyond the specific policies of lockdown or no lockdown. And those factors are the size of the informal economy. That is to say, how many people are living hand to mouth by uh, um, the jobs that they carry out basically in the street. Um, they have no factory. They have no employer who's going to, in any way, take care of them. The government, um, the government has not been able to, to create a safety net for those people. And so, no matter what the rules are, they they have to go out and work. We saw that in Peru that started with a very strict, in fact, militarized lockdown. But then after a while, the tensions of survival and lockdown um, made the death rate shoot up. And what had been controlled in the early stages was completely out of control in the later stages. Right now in Mexico City, you don't see, it depends on where you are, but we were, and there are people in the street they're generally speaking wearing masks, uh, but there's been a lot of mixed messages coming out from the government, particularly from the federal government. In Mexico City, for example, many people will have seen that there should have been a red stoplight called much earlier than it finally was because they knew that the hospital situ- the hospital system was being saturated. They knew that uh, their efforts to, to be able to control and assure that there wasn't a collapse in the hospital system were, at, were closer to collapse than they ever had been in the pandemic before this month. And uh, yet they did, again, wait till the last minute on that. Uh, President Lopez Obrador has been giving out a lot of mixed messages. He normally will not wear a mask. And although he calls on the population to take measures, is not very specific about what those measures are and has often caused, called on the, you know, set an example of not wearing a mask, of not having the people around him wearing a mask, of not maintaining safe distance when he goes out to his public presentations, which is quite frequent. And so his uh, the result is that his many, many followers in many cases have minimized and misunderstood the, the way that the contagion spreads. Um, right now, we're almost close to capacity in the hospital system. Uh, and people are, there are signs all over the city saying this Christmas, no family gatherings, no parties. Uh, this is what they're most afraid of because it's such a deep part of the, the Mexican culture, of course, of any culture, but particularly here, the, the parties and the family gatherings, and they tend to be fairly large. 
So they uh, are, are really putting out that message everywhere. But you can also feel, and this is something I'm sure you're feeling in the United States, that as people begin to um, run out of patience, uh, they tend to minimize, again, the, the problem with it. Tomorrow, the vaccinations will begin, and they're beginning with the health workers, and that will be a sign of hope for many other. They have groups set out. They're beginning with health workers. After that, they'll go to the older citizens, the older people within the country, and then basically move down by age groups. Uh, so people are pretty clear, at least on on when they will be able to have access to the vaccines. It looks like the government has uh, a, a relatively good supply of vaccines for the population, but there's still a long haul and it's, and it's true the atmosphere is, is one of fear of confusion in some ways. Uh, people are trying to comply, but there's a, a there's a great deal of fear that the holiday season could cause another spike. That the hospital system, in in particular, is not a, fully equipped to deal with. A lot more to ask about that, but let me just follow up on the COVID question and ask you about uh, some of your writing on the issue of Trump and COVID. And and you basically argued in Counterpunch that uh, the Trump administration essentially used COVID or weaponized COVID uh, as a means of advancing a white supremacist agenda. I think that that's obviously true, but I want to just ask you to give us a, a little bit of a detailed explanation of exactly how they did that. What was the agenda? How did they do that? How did COVID factor in? Well, we saw from the very beginning the way in which he attempted to use the coronavirus pandemic uh, to promote the xenophobic agenda in general by constantly calling it the China flu, leading to hate crimes against Asian American citizens. And in the case of Mexico, uh, the border was closed. And so this image that somehow immigrants were an invasion or a source of contagion that had already been established by the anti-immigrant policies became intensified. In particular, the the most gre- uh, the the most obvious example of this was on March 20th when Robert Redfield, the chief of the Center for Disease Control, applied this quarantine law to justify completely sealing the Mexican border to asylum seekers. You know, we already had a slowdown. We already had to send them back to Mexico. But in this case, it was utter denial of the right to seek asylum or refuge in the United States. And it was through the application of a 19 or of an 1893 law that really had almost nothing to do with the situation at hand. In addition, scientists were very clear that there was no greater contagion coming from, from, um, you know, from, from people south of the border than there was within the communities. It was already at a stage that there was community-to-community contagion in the United States. And in fact, the rate of uh, cases and contagion there was far above the rate in Mexico. So there was no scientific basis whatsoever for this, and yet it functioned very well for advancing this anti-immigrant 
response on the part of the Trump administration. And then you saw it all the way down the line, the abandonment, especially of undocumented workers in the United States. Um, I had several friends who in New York City, among the undocumented population had to create their own mutual aid societies to keep people from, you know, to keep people, families with enough food to put on the table when when the people that they depended on for income became sick. So many of the undocumented workers and other immigrants were working in essential industries that were on the front line of contagion that were highly exposed, that the rate of uh, of illness, you know, the of coronavirus among them was very high and and they were afraid to go to the hospitals. And of course, the government did absolutely nothing to make it possible to say to communities, no, in order we're all in this together. And that means we all have to keep safe. And that means that you have as much right to not die of this pandemic as anybody else. And it's been tragic. And then you and then you have a a a bailout or you know a rescue package that punished not only undocumented workers but also people who are married to undocumented workers it looks like it's been partially corrected in this most recent package but that was just so outrageous and so blatantly cruel to some of the people who were doing the jobs that were absolutely essential to keep society running at extremely high risk I want to ask you in the time that we have remaining to give us a little bit of a window into how Mexico fits in with broader trends in Latin America. Uh, last week, we spoke with Mike Fox, uh, who's based in Brazil, who's been uh, writing and reporting on the Bolsonaro regime over the last few years and the transformation in Brazil. Uh, several episodes previous to that, we had uh, we had reporting from on the ground in Bolivia, talking about the, uh, the return of Evo and the return of the movement for socialism. So, so much happening in Latin America, but in each of those places, whether Bolivia, Venezuela, um, you know, and elsewhere in Latin America, one thing that in Brazil, elsewhere, we've seen in this period uh, under Trump and and others, the explosive rise of the, uh, let's call it the more organized far right in Latin America, increasingly, I think, radicalizing in some ways, certainly in places like Brazil, where they have an actual president that they can look towards, just as they did in the United States with Trump. Um, so I want to ask you, A, about the right wing in Mexico and uh, how, you know, to the extent to which they're engaged in, in, in politics, getting organized, is there a sort of fascist street uh, contingent uh, to it? And then the second part of that is, uh, to what extent has the conspiracy theory ecosystem penetrated the right wing and mainstream society in Mexico? Because it is absolutely pervasive in the United States. In Mexico, the right wing has been absolutely rabid since Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador came into office and has been organizing and provoking uh, and and using the media in particular during this period to try to uh, to try to kick him out of office despite his overwhelming victory at the polls and in fact his continued popularity 
of over 60% of the population. So if you go down to Mexico City on in downtown on any given day on the weekends, you will see uh, and hear small but very vocal demonstrations calling for uh, the removal of Lopez Obrador from, from, from office. The downtown area, the Central Plaza, was taken over with a bunch of mostly empty tents that were established there as a protest of his presidency. It's very clear that this right wing is not talking about defeating him at the polls in the next election. It's a six-year presidency, but it's talking about using pretty much any means necessary to get rid of him, including the possibility of a coup. That's why, in part, uh, he's put such a high emphasis on his relationship with the armed forces, having seen historically that the 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 real key to be able to resist these kinds of right wing forces that have international support. We remember that when Steve Bannon left the Trump administration, his job was to go through Europe, in this case, to build those ultra-right white supremacist movements. And they have certainly been being built in Latin America with international connections as well. We don't know to what degree here in Mexico, but we do know that they have similar features. Um, I was talking to someone from Mass not too long ago, kind of comparing notes about that uh, and and sending up some red flags regarding the danger of this international movement, and particularly for women, because patriarchy and the control of women's bodies and activism is so central to their social agenda. So here in Mexico, there's, it's, it's creating a limiting factor on the government with serious concerns. It continues to be a, a minority, but has power centered in its control over the media and messaging and in um, its ability to control or its ability to to hold sway over sectors of the economic elite. This is a danger for the Lopez Obrador government. It's a fine line that they have had to walk. Uh, And although they've been able to maintain their popularity, they've been able to maintain their base and continue with the changes that were laid out At the beginning of the administration, we have seen areas in which uh, a more cautious route has been taken because of that threat from the right wing. And as far as the spread of conspiracy theories, this is something that I'm interested in from the Mexico perspective, uh, especially since we saw just how significant of a role they played in the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, Just the WhatsApp uh, disinformation channels were absolutely 
critical in that election. So uh, how has the conspiracy theory ecosystem uh, evolved in Mexico? Is it penetrating in the way that it is in Brazil, in the United States, and in the other countries where the right seized power? Uh, this takes very obviously various forms, whether it's with respect to conspiracy theorizing around vaccinations and the origins of COVID, to conspiracy theorizing about international cabals of pedophiles who drink children's blood. Uh, so how does it how does it work in Mexico? Well, not exactly in the same way. You know, we haven't heard as much about those deep state conspiracies or or really the kind of broader conspiracies, really crazy stuff that, that you're talking about there and that have been so surprisingly and disturbingly strong. But we do see a great deal of information, most of it concentrated on uh, Lopez Obrador and in his person, you know, uh, information regarding uh, policies that are misrepresented, regarding, um, you know, information about acts of corruption that didn't necessarily take place. So the constant attacks in terms of the, the use of both social media and the mainstream media to carry out carry out those kinds of attacks has been has been extremely intense, far more intense than I've ever seen in the past. But in the past, there there wasn't a center left government, you know. Um, yeah, so I don't know to if there's if there's a danger, Eric. I'm really not sure. You know, to that it could devolve into something closer to what you're seeing there. There's a polarization, but as I say, the difference is I would say that this polarization is is very concentrated on the figure of Lopez Lopez Obrador. Of course, it was concentrated on the figure of Trump as well, but it doesn't have quite as many of uh, those deeper worldview kind of features. It's very class-based. We see uh, very clearly that it has to do with the struggle of privileged sectors to retain and assure their privilege as the country goes through what Lopez Obrador calls uh, the fourth transformation. We just saw a report from the uh, the International Committee to Protect Journalists, uh, which every year goes through the statistics and does their analysis of the various countries and how safe or dangerous they are for journalists. And typically you see countries like Afghanistan at the top of the list, others, and in fact, the United States is increasingly becoming dangerous for journalists as we saw throughout this past summer. But uh, Mexico is right at the top of the list. Number one, the most dangerous country in the world for journalists. We've seen targeted assassinations of journalists for the last several years. Well, long Longer than that, but prominently uh, over the last several years. I want to get your analysis of the safety situation for journalists. Uh, what does this mean? Why is it escalating right now? It's terrible. It's a terrible situation. And it's true. Uh, hardly a week goes by that there isn't another attack or assassination on journalists. Many of them are working in local areas where their media can't protect them or or other mechanisms of protection are not working for them. It's a problem that the government supposedly was confronting from years ago and just seems to be getting worse. 
Part of it has to do with the fact that the overall security situation has actually gotten worse rather than better. It has to do with the fact that the cartels are still warring. It has to do with the long-term tendency that we identified many, many years ago, that when the DEA comes in with its kingpin strategy of taking out high-level leaders of cartels, it creates fragmentation and it creates turf battles and it creates uh, more violence, especially against the civilian population than there actually was before. So after after celebrating, for example, the capture of El Chapo Guzman, we now have um, wars that are raising rather than lowering the homicide rate this is this is a product of this model of a war on drugs there's also been a disturbing lack of um consistent and vigorous uh measures by the lopez obrador government to protect to investigate and to prosecute crimes against journalists it's very rare that a, after a journalist is murdered that the federal government will step in to uh, to investigate. Most of the cases have been left in complete impunity over the years, and the attitude seems to be more like, well, let's just move on rather than trying to find any justice or prevention measures that would actually work against the problem. And this has been, they're in part made worse by a a consistent attitude on the part of the president to denigrate the press. We saw this under President Trump, you know, the attitude toward the press was, was on a personal visceral level. And here it's not quite as ugly, but there are constant comments in which any press that is critical of the presidency is uh, referred to as being bought, is referred to as being corrupt, is referred to as having an alternative agenda. And so it creates within society a general impression that the press is is not a respectable institution, especially among his uh, Lopez Obrador's followers, and uh, and that puts them in a more vulnerable situation. So between the the idea the the criticisms coming straight from the top of the very important critical work that the press is doing in Mexico and needs to be doing. And the fact that the cases are not followed up on, that there aren't adequate protection measures, this whole, whole, and the fact that there's this generalized violence, you know, it's just created a kind of a worst case scenario to exercise freedom of expression and to report, uh, particularly on certain issues here within Mexico. It's an absolute crisis. And it has to be dealt with in a different way. It's the press, and we also see it happening with human rights defenders uh, in, in many of the same terms. 
And so there's, there's, there's an awareness. And I guess that's one of the frustrating things is that there's an awareness of the problem. There's been an awareness for many years of the problem and there's occasional lip service paid to the need to protect the press and to protect freedom of the press. And yet we don't see progress on any of these fronts. My final question, Laura, I want to I want to ask you about social movements. What is the situation in Mexico with respect to the various social movements, be they labor organizations, trade unions and stuff, or be they, uh, you know, peasants, workers, organizations, rural organizations, uh, uh, women's organizations and so forth? Because one of the one of the things that we have seen since the uh, since the beginning of covid is this kind of very uh tense atmosphere whereby, you know, on the one hand, people are concerned about gathering and on the other hand, explosive uh, social and cultural issues that come to the fore, of course, in the United States, the protests around the killing of George Floyd and everything that happened over the course of the summer uh, in in Brazil and in elsewhere, we're seeing social movements activating in response to situations in those countries. What's going on in Mexico uh, on the ground, in the grassroots as far as resistance? Even though the government has been in office for a couple of years now, uh, there's still kind of a, a situation of, of transition and reorganization among social movements. Perhaps that's endemic. You know, I guess social movements have those ebbs and flows all the time, but I think it's particularly marked at this time because they have to figure out how to relate to a center-left government that at least in its rhetoric espouses some of their own causes and that they, in fact, supported during the elections in 2018. Uh, The one movement that has been very vocal and uh, the probably more than any other has been the feminist movement because of the continued rise of feminist of femicides the feminist movement has said very clearly we can't live and survive off of promises uh in this context of violence against women we are not seeing a government that is willing to respond and take sufficiently serious enough this problem. And what happens is that there has really been no dialogue. uh, And that has caused the movement, the women's movement, to become more and more radical when they get responses like, well, how could you be criticizing us if we have half then half the members of the cabinet are women, you know, and the, and, and the women's movement says parity is not the same as feminist policy, and it's certainly not the same as actually doing something about violence against women. Uh, it's been a very difficult relationship, you know, there, it's, been, it's been very disappointing for many women who are are extremely concerned about this tendency, even if the homicide rate has been going up in Mexico, and there's some indications that there's in just last month or so, there's been a slight dip. But what we do see is that the femicide rate has really been going up and it's been quite consistent. So we expect that movement to become more radical and to become, they've taken over the National Human Rights Office, for example. Uh, They have taken over at different times the university and the schools demanding an end to gender violence. 
And it's caused an unfortunately antagonistic relationship between a government that espouses equality of women and a movement that's looking for results. Of course, so much more to discuss with respect to Mexico. We're going to have to leave it there. Laura Carlson, thank you so much for coming back on Counterpunch Radio. Laura Carlson, the director of the Americas program based in Mexico City. She is also a columnist with Counterpunch. You can find her column on Counterpunch Plus uh, anytime you want it. She's she's always got the excellent analysis. Laura, thanks again for coming on the show and talking with us today. Well, thank you, Eric. It's always a pleasure. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support. Go to Counterpunch, get yourself a subscription, and we'll chat again next week.